for our second argument with our uh, slightly different panel. Uh, we now have uh, Ms. Peggy Hampson on my right and, of course, Judge Bloodstein here. So, all right. I reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Okay. That's already done. May it please the court. I'm Hunt Wofford, and together with my co-counsel, Rebecca Wofford, we represent Tricosa Green, who is the appellant in this action. We are asking the court to reverse and vacate the trial judge's order for permanent child support in this matter. In North Carolina, there are three classes of people who are subject to being ordered to pay child support for a minor. Generally speaking, those three classes of people are biological parents, adoptive parents, or any other person or agency organization standing in local in loco parentis who has voluntarily assumed the obligation to support a child in writing. My client, Tricosa Green, it falls into none of those three classes. Nevertheless, at trial, the trial judge created a new class of parent for child support purposes, determined that my client was a member of that class and ordered her to pay child support. The appellee in this case is named Ms. Carter. So when I refer to Ms. Carter, that's who I'm talking about. But Ms. Green and Ms. Carter, uh, for several years prior to the birth of the minor child in this case, were involved in an on-again, off-again dating relationship. Uh, the relationship, I believe, the evidence was began in New York State. Uh, and during that time, uh, they, would, they were together. Ms. Carter determined that she wanted to become pregnant by way of in vitro fertilization. Uh, Ms. Green uh, supported Ms. Carter in those efforts, uh, would attend doctor's visits with her, um, and at some point even allowed her insurance through employment to provide coverage to Ms. Carter under a domestic partnership um, uh, allowance within that insurance policy. So Ms. Ms. Green provided the insurance coverage that Ms. Carter used for the in vitro fertilization treatments. Um, at some point, the relationship ended, and Ms. Carter moved to Michigan, which is where the minor child was born. Thereafter, and the child was born on November 29th of 2016, which is important in this case given the dates uh, of how the law developed in this area for, uh, for same-gender marriage and things like that. So the child was born in 2016 in Michigan, and thereafter, the parties separately moved to the state of North Carolina. On October 26th of 2018, Ms. Green filed an action for custody. She had to proceed as a third-party non-parent in that action. The trial court found that she was a non-parent in that action. Well, let's, let's, let's stop right there. The trial court did not find she was a non-parent in that action. The, the trial court used defined terms, didn't it? Not it in defined the her as, it defined your client as, quote, non-parent, and Miss um, Carter as, I can't remember, biological parent or, or whatever the, the terminology. I think biological parent was the term, yes. Um, and, and so, but ultimately found that your client did, in fact, or essentially was a, a de facto parent, you know, sort of applying our, you know, Estrop, Mason, McLean, whatever, all those cases that on the facts of this case, that your client had, in fact, kind of moved into that role as a de facto parent. So 
the mere fact that it used, I mean, maybe it wasn't the most articulate defined term, maybe it wasn't, you know, the most helpful defined term, but that's all it was. I mean, it could have called, the trial court could have defined your client as a ham sandwich. It didn't make her a ham sandwich. It's just simply to delineate between the two parties. It, it, I mean, how do you respond to well, Ultimately, what the, what the trial judge found, which is important, is that she was not a biological or an adoptive parent sure. and had to proceed as a third-party non-parent for purposes of, of obtaining custody. And, and that's consistent with our, our custody law. Which is consistent with the common law in this state and, and consistent with, as Your Honor said, the Estroff case and all the, the, the progeny thereafter that did use the term de facto parent. And what the trial judge did, which is important in that case, was had to look at the actions of the biological parent to determine whether the biological parent had acted inconsistent with her protected constitutional rights. And once the trial judge made that finding, then the trial judge was able to, 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 to proceed to enter a custody order based on what's in the best interests of the minor child, as, as that, is the, that is the law. That, that order proceeded, and then, and then my client, Ms. Green, was granted some custodial and visitation rights. But at no point was my client found to be a parent in any way other than, as Your Honor stated, through the de facto parent uh, uh, standard that was set in, in Estroff and Mason and Price and those, those cases here in North Carolina. So thereafter, and while, you know, while that custody action was pending, a custody action that, by the way, Ms. Carter denied all along that Ms. Green was a parent to this child and, and, and should be treated as a parent to this child. Ms. Carter filed her child support action. The child support action was consolidated into the custody action. And the I was going to ask you about that, too, because I, I, I noticed that the, the file numbers were different and then the support order got entered in the... the the custody action. That's filed. right. The custody action was filed first, and so under our local rules in Mecklenburg County, they were, and probably everywhere else, the, they were consolidated yep. into the older case, which is why Ms. Green is listed as the plaintiff Got in it. this action. Yeah. Um, and so after the child custody action was tried in 2019, the child support claim proceeded and was not tried again until two years later in 2021 under a new judge. A new judge had been assigned to our case. At that trial, the trial judge determined that Ms. Green was a de facto parent and proceeded along the lines of Ms. Green being a de facto parent and actually made a finding in his order that, a, that Ms. Green is a parent to the minor child in the same sense that the heterosexual terms mother and father are used. This court finds it appropriate to apply those terms in a gender neutral way. And that is where the trial judge erred in this case. The trial judge looked to NCGS 50-13.4 and decided that it needed to be applied in a gender neutral way. And our argument is that 50-13.4 is already a non-gendered statute. It does not act in a gendered way. It does refer to mother and father, but ultimately it's talking about parents. And it, it provides for a, 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 a delineation between those who are primarily responsible with support of a minor child and those who are secondary, secondarily responsible for the support of a minor child. And that delineation comes up again in this court order because the trial judge found 
that Ms. Green was a primarily responsible party who would be primarily responsible for support of this minor child. And that was the error, the error that the trial judge committed. Those who are primarily responsible for the support of a minor child under our statutes are mothers and fathers, or if we just want to generally talk about them in a non-gendered way, parents. And parents, the, 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 the term parent is a legal status that our statutes provide for under our law. When it comes to defining parent, the statutes make it clear, and it's not just 50-13.4. There are numerous statutes that talk about how we're going to apply the parent standard or the, or the parent classification to a party in, an, in, a, in a custody lawsuit or even a child support lawsuit. And those, those, those standards that the statutes talk about sort of cross the line both between a marital status between the parents and a biological status between the child and the putative father. The biological question is never ever really asked when it comes to the birth mother for obvious reasons. But when it comes to a third party, such as the father or a male parent, then we have some biological testing that we can do. So we have biological parents. We have parents who are parents by way of marriage. You know, when you have a father who is married to the mother at the time of birth, the presumption is raised that he is the father and there's no biological testing that's required unless there's some question of a putative father that's not a member of the marriage relationship. But ultimately, in this case, we don't have any of those standards met. These parties were not married. They could have been married. They, their, their relationship began and ended after the 2014 Supreme Court case that made same-gender marriage available to all same-gender couples. They lived in North Carolina at a time when North Carolina could have, or, or when they could have been married under North Carolina law. The child was born at a time when a same-gendered couple could, could enact an adoption method so that the, the non-biological mother could adopt the child and become a parent that way. Is so, that, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, please. Well, I'll just say, say under the, so if they'd been married, um, under the statute that the uh, child born to um, artificial insemination um, is considered the same at law as a naturally conceived legitimate child of husband and wife, um, that's 49A-1. Right. And of course we have the statute 12-3, uh, husband and wife um, can be construed to mean any two individuals lawfully married to one another. So if they'd been married, we would would that fall under those statutes? I realize they weren't. This is one of those hypothetical things. That's a question that came up when I was, when we were doing the research for this. And while we don't have to answer that here, right. I believe the answer is yes. I, yeah. I believe in that case, it would have been appropriate for a trial judge, if that case arises, that it would be appropriate for a trial judge to look at that statute and, and look at it in a way that needs to be gender neutral and that sort of thing as, as we've come to develop law in areas like domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Because that would be consistent with the, with the statute. Now, our argument, or, or with, the, with the spirit of the statute and the reasoning for the statute. So in that case, yes, uh, I think that the law would, would the, that case would result in there not being a question of parentage at that point. And then when a custody case came up, the parents would be on equal footing. We wouldn't have to do the constitutional, clear and cogent convincing evidence test. We would, we would go right into a best interest in issue. And in a child support case, those parents would both be primarily liable 
for the support of a child? I think that would be the answer there. So the, you know, you know, part of the reason the, you know, Estrov and Mason, McLean, those cases arose when they did was because we had this issue, right, in the law where we, you know, we did have um, same-sex couples, you know, uh, IVF, um, and there, there was simply no mechanism recognized under our law for, at that time, you know, single-parent adoption, th those sorts of things. But, but clearly, at least in some of those cases, there was at least an argument that there were essentially parental relationships, right? So why then is, is you know, so sort of, I'll, I don't like calling it de facto parent, but the, the sort of this de facto parent doctrine, um, why is it, does it not sort of necessarily follow that, you know, if de facto parent works in the, in the custody aspect concept when, you know, the statutes didn't cover that situation, why then doesn't that sort of track logically to the child support aspect of the case? Well, because at no point in our years of doing the de facto parenting, uh, or years of having the de facto parent uh, standard in North Carolina has it been used uh, in the child support uh, realm. and it, That doesn't necessarily mean it shouldn't be. Well, except for the fact that child support is the realm of the legislature. And child support and the child support statutes have all been, that, that has been child support. Custody has sort of developed in this sort of this common law way with best interests and, and, and things like that. But child support has always been a realm of statute. And if we're going to allow a trial judge to declare somebody it doesn't it's not necessarily domestic partner they can be declared a, a, a de facto parent if, if the child if the trial judge can declare some third non third party non-parent to be a de facto parent then that would cause it, it, would, it, would, it would it would be a negative factor for third parties to step in and try to help minor children who might need help it would be a uh, I mean under the statute organizations and um, um, institutions could ultimately be determined to. But, but isn't the concept of, of, you know, this, this idea of, you know, acts inconsistent with one's constitutionally protected status as a parent, that's a common law mm -hmm. standard. So, so common law created the ability for your, your client to obtain some of the, the, the parental rights. Why then would common law not permit, well, uh, you know, the, 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 the requisite and commensurate obligations of being a parent. I think that a distinction here that we need to make is when we're looking at the de facto parent standard in a custody case, we're looking at the actions solely of the biological parent. The non-parent can't do things to become a de facto parent that the, non that the parent, the biological parent, doesn't allow. And you see that distinction early on in the de facto parenting because, I mean, I mean when the Mason and the Estroff cases were determined within the same at the same time, I'm, I'm, the biological parent won one of those cases right. and was found not to have violated the constitutional, their constitutional rights. And in the other case, they were. So it is in the custody realm, when you're looking at that de facto parenting, you're looking at only the actions, really, of the biological parent. The non-biological parent can't, can't force their way into that without the biological parent being doing, doing something. And then to then flip that and then require a, a, a de facto parent that may be that may be determined based on the actions of the biological parent would be unfair to all the potential de facto child support paying parents out there. 
but your client sought those custodial rights in this case. She sought them because she saw a need for it with this minor child. She saw something that the minor child needed, saw a best interest, uh, a best interest that the minor child wasn't having satisfied at the custody level. The trial judge agreed, found that the biological parent was not acting consistent with her constitutional rights, and, and, and did that process. The trial judge couldn't find that our client, just by seeking those actions, had done what she needed to do to become a custodial parent. The trial judge had to find that the biological parent didn't or did something else. And so that was the, you know, that was the issue there. And, and the biological parent fought that along the way, fought the, the, the claim that my client had to, that she had acted inconsistent with her constitutional rights. We had to have a whole trial about it. So. But isn't there, sorry. Well, I was just going to try to get, get back to the statutes because we've got different wording in the custody statute versus the child support statute. In the child support statute, um, we have um, father and mother primarily responsible for the support of a child. In the custody statute, we have different wording. Uh, one thing I think is interesting is, is you know, the statute about a custody of a person cap incapable of self-support upon reaching majority. Uh, the under that statute, the custody laws still apply, but the child support doesn't, which I've always thought was the craziest thing I've ever seen. But that's what the General Assembly said. So if you could talk about the differences in the statutes. Well, as Your Honor said, the, 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 I, I think that the reasoning behind the child support statute is one of the ideas is to look at the history of that statute and how it's changed over time. And you know, early versions of the statute you know, listed parties in order of, of responsibility, with father being first and mother being second, and then institutions that, m that may go along. So I think that one of the reasons for the differences in the statutes these days is sort of the, the history of both statutes. I don't know that when the uh, original custody statutes were written that, that the word parent was used any different or, or, you know, or anything like that, but, you know, the custody or the child support statute is written for the purpose, I think, and used for the purpose, I think, of literal financial support for minor children, and it provides a way for parties to do that uh, outside of the marital relationship when you're talking about third-party institutions and, and, and that sort of thing. But it limits those types of obligations and limits that type of um, um, child support between primary and secondary support in that way. Um, and I think really when we're talking about the differences between these two statutes, the reason is they've sort of developed over time in different ways. And I don't know that there's any specific um, motivation uh, on the part of the legislature or anything like that when it comes to using different words in different statutes. I think that's just the way it developed. I think the, an important thing to do here when we're talking about gender neutral interpretation of statutes is to look at what that really means. In this case, I think the, gen the, 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 the court looked at a same gendered couple and thought that gender neutral means one thing that it really doesn't. Gender neutral interpretation of statutes is meant so that results will be the same under that statute regardless of the gender of the parties. That's what the gender neutral means. And so you know, the best example of that is in the domestic violence statute. When you look at a couple who is together, who is, uh, there's a domestic violence issue within that couple, whether they're a married couple or not, 
to have read that statute in a way that limited its protection to men and women would not have made sense under the spirit of the statute. But if we look at the child support statute and we think about how it will be developed under a gender neutral way, we think to ourselves, is this, what if Ms. Green was Mr. Green? What if Mr. Green and Ms. Carter had been together in a dating relationship and then split up prior to the birth of the child or even after the birth of the child? And what if their relationship had developed the exact same way that Ms. Green and Ms. Carter's relationship developed and ended in this case? Under the statute, I don't believe that there's much of a question that Mr. Green would not be required to pay child support. He may have still been able to obtain some custodial rights under the constitutional argument that Ms. Green was able to succeed under, but he would not be, nobody would intend or nobody would think that he would be obligated to pay child support in that case because he would be a non-married, non-adopted parent to that child. At best, he would be a third party acting in loco parentis here and there, but that's not what happened here and it's not the findings of the trial judge in this case. Remember, the trial judge in this case found that Ms. Green was primarily responsible for the support of this child and the only parties in North Carolina under the statute who are primarily responsible for the birth or for the support of a minor child are biological parents and adopted parents. That's where we are. Any change to that would need to be done by the legislature and to, to go, be, go you know, to, to make those changes to the statute would be stepping into the, into the bounds of what the legislature is entitled to do. I still have some time left unless there's other further questions. I was going to sit and wait for my rebuttal. Well, let me. Yes. Sir. So, uh, is there not an element of sort of, of judicial estoppel that comes into to play here, in that you know you, you prevailed on the custody aspect, prevailed on the essentially the de facto parent aspect to obtain custodial rights? How then do you um, sort of take the opposite position that for purposes of child support you're not a, a parent? Is, I guess that's the question. Does judicial estoppel between the custody action and the child support action come into play here? I don't believe it does, Your Honor, because that would, in, in that sort of a fact pattern, you wouldn't be able to limit those types of obligations to just same-gendered couples. You would have any third party that had the ability or the desire or the need, whether the third party is an individual, a grandparent, a, um, uh, you know, a county uh, domestic or a, a, a county child's protective services group that could come in and act in loco parentis and, 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 and assert custodial rights over a child, they would then be subject to some sort of judicial estoppel and child support uh, obligation under that kind of a, of a broad uh, powered ability of a trial judge. So we, we need to limit uh, this child support obligation to the statute. We need to let the the legislature make its changes if any changes are needed. Thank you. Good morning, Chief Judge Stroud, Judge Hanson, and Judge Blood. May it please the court, my name is Rebecca Watts and I'm here today on behalf of the defendant, Appellee Ms. Carter. 
The issue we have here before you today is whether someone who does not share a biological or adoptive relationship with a child can still be considered a mother or a father for purposes of child support. It's our position that when two people make a conscious decision to create a child together, that child deserves to receive financial support from the two people responsible for that child's conception and birth. Our current law is oriented toward children who are born as a result of sexual intercourse between a man and a woman, but the reality is that many children are conceived and born through, through other means. And if we believe if two people engage in sexual intercourse and the child results, and we're gonna hold both of them responsible, whether they're married or unmarried, <clears throat> and they're both accountable for child support, even if they didn't intend to create a child, we're gonna hold them both responsible. So if we are going to treat children who are conceived through assisted reproduction, when both people consciously are choosing to create a child, if we say these children are not entitled to support, then we're giving these children a different status than children who are born through sexual reproduction. How can we then say they are both not responsible for child support when they had a sole intention of creating a child? Um, Mr. Wofford talked about Ms. Carter wanting to be the parent and Ms. Green kind of jumping on that bandwagon. The truth is, if you look at the paperwork from the assisted reproduction, they both participated every step. They both signed every consent. There's paperwork where they're consenting what to do with unused embryos in the case they don't use them all. There's paperwork where they both had to consent to have an embryo thawed and implanted in Ms. Carter. So that to us is not just playing along. That is a conscious choice to take this child, this embryo that's been conceived, and to turn this into a child. And so if we're going to say we're gonna treat children differently <clears throat> who are born to a same-sex couple, is the rationale gonna be marital status? Is it gonna be biology and Neither one of those makes a whole lot of sense. <clears throat> and um, with, with Mr. Wofford, um, I think uh, it was Judge Stroud, you, you were asking about the NCGS 12-13 that says we use the terms husband and wife <clears throat> to be gender neutral. So if you then uh, combine that with 130A-101 that says the husband of the woman who gives birth is presumed to be the father, if we're reading that in a gender neutral way, then the spouse of the woman who gives birth is presumed to be the father or, or the other parent. <clears throat> so, you know, they talk about in their brief that marital rights have no basis or no bearing in child support. And we say, well, it, it kind of doesn't, it kind of doesn't because you know, if, if you are an opposite sex couple who's not, not married, it doesn't matter that you're not married. You created a child together, you're both responsible. If you're a same-sex couple who creates a child together, are we really saying the only way you're responsible is if you're married? But if you're not married, somehow you're in a different class than an opposite-sex couple <clears throat> who has produced a child through, through sexual intercourse? What I think I heard from, from your colleague, and, and I'm happy to be corrected if I'm misstating it, but what, what I'm hearing is that their, their position is that if uh, in, in an unmarried couple mm -hmm. scenario, same sex right. or not, um, that there is, that 
the father, the father, the non, mm -hmm. the non-biological parent, mm -hmm. I guess, has would have zero support obligation, irrespective of, of gender. That, I think that's what I heard. I mean, how do you how, how do you respond to that scenario? That that there's a gender neutral uh, way to approach this, and that's just to say, if you're an unmarried couple that has uh, a child through IVF with a with a donor, I guess, mm -hmm. um, that there's there's just no support obligation on the part of the non, but quote unquote non-parent. Um, and our position is that's not the right thing to do. <clears throat> Whether that is, you know, we, we've got one, the one statute that deals with assisted reproduction <laughs> that deals with um, artificial insemination of a wife by sperm other than husband sperm. We don't have any anything else. So technically under our statutes, if a husband and wife are together and they use a donor egg and donor sperm and the child is created outside the woman's body and implanted in the woman, <coughs> technically that child, under our current laws about assisted reproduction, technically that child, that husband would not have responsibility <coughs> because we have a specific statute that talks about in what situation husband is responsible for a child born to his wife when not born of his genetic material. Say, do we, we have a different situation? Is he responsible? Um, say, well, is, is mom mom? Um, and they're defining mom as someone who provides the genetic material or gives birth. And what if you have a situation, and this is not hypothetical, this is a real case I had. Two women, one provided the egg, one gestated and gave birth. Who is the mom? Are they both the mom? Is neither the mom? Well, for custody, genetic material provider is mom. <clears throat> for child support, are they both mom? Does that mean there can be two moms for child support or just one mom and one dad? <clears throat> so that is a very long wind up to I'm actually gonna answer your question, Judge Hampton, <clears throat> is that when two people consciously create a child together, whether they are married or unmarried, those two people should be financially responsible for that child. <clears throat> Even if it is an opposite sex couple who use a sperm donor. And I'm not talking about a situation um, that Mr. Wofford's worried about where after the fact, people come in and say, <clears throat> I think I'm gonna help out and be a parent. Does this now put me on the hook for child support? <clears throat> That is you know, an in loco parentis sort of after the fact. I'm talking about a situation where no child has yet been conceived and two people say, we are going to make a child. We are both participating. We're both signing paperwork. We are choosing the genetic material to be used and we are implementing the plan to create a child that it should not matter whether both of them are providing genetic material or one of them is providing genetic material, or neither is providing genetic material. I think if two people are, are dating and they said, we're going to have a child together, we're engaged, we're gonna get married, we wanna go ahead and get pregnant. Before we get married, <clears throat> we wanna create a child together. And they use a donor embryo. Those two people have chosen for this child to come into this world, and so should be required to support the child. And one of the things, again, I think I heard from your, from your colleague was was the concern that you know if if, if really all we're doing here uh, in the de facto parent mm -hmm. world is just simply applying this sort of like typical third party mm -hmm. child custody 
piece. And so if we start then just throwing open child support, we might have the situation where, you know, you know, whether it's grandparent or family friend that was coming along and helping to provide support or, or even that child had been temporarily left with the family friend and, um, and those types of cases that we'd be throwing open the, the doors, you know, potentially broadly to child support actions against, you know, third parties. Um, am, am I hearing you try to articulate perhaps a more a narrower rule that, would, that, would, <coughs> that, that we could apply and our courts could apply? <coughs> yes, yes. Um I think if we're dealing with a situation where you're talking about a grandparent or a neighbor who takes care of the child, in that case, if you want that person to have some responsibility for child support, you can get into the child support statute and say, is this another person who has assumed the obligation right? And did the next door neighbor said, look, I'll take your child into my home, I'll support your child while they go to high school. So they'd be in my high school district, or you guys are having a rough time, you need to go to rehab, I'm gonna take care of the child. Usually there's something written at that point. Um, that is a, an other person assuming the obligation in writing. I'm talking about further back. I'm talking about mother and father, the two people who created the child, not other people jumping in later. Other people jumping in later, we, we, we already deal with that. If they are another person who has assumed the obligation in writing and it's a grandparent or a sister or a neighbor or in any of that. Um, what I'm talking about is specifically two people who are before the child's been conceived, deciding to have a child together, should not be treated differently just because that child's not conceived through traditional sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. So I don't think it's going to have the floodgate, slippery slope situation that that Mr. Wofford's imagining um, in, in the in this particular case, because we're dealing with a different different situation. You know, he, he talked about the, the categories of people responsible for child support, and he said biological parents. Well, the statute actually says mother and father. It doesn't mention biology. Um, we deal with biological issues in custody, but we deal with mother and father. So what I am proposing is um, we treat mother and father, either we treat it gender neutrally as, you know, mother, mother, father, or it does not mean one mother is all there can be and one father is all there can be. Whether they can be two mothers, they can be two fathers. And both mothers are, if there's two mothers and no father, both mothers are responsible. If there's two fathers and no mother, then there's no mother responsible, the two fathers are. <clears throat> but we do, this idea of, of biology is tied so closely in custody because we made a decision a long time ago that you have a constitutional right to your biological genetic offspring. <clears throat> and if somebody wants to interfere with that, they've got to jump through some hoops. Um, when you're dealing with cases with same-sex couples who use assisted reproduction prior to marriage, <clears throat> in most of these cases, and I know when, when we, back when the dawn of this with Mason and Estroff, you know, that there are some cases where they didn't choose to do it together. One did it, the other was kind of along for the ride and really didn't have the, those rights. And that's easy enough to tell from the beginning or pretty early on in a custody case. Um, was this a joint thing or was this a single thing that somebody else just kind of was there, there along the way? Um, here it's very clear it was a joint thing. They had joint maternity photos. <laughs> um, and, and throughout Miss um, Green's complaint, she 
calls herself mother or mama or mom um, and says, this is my child. So there is, there is no question that they made the choice together to have this child. Um, well, I guess, you know, we, we can uh, agree perhaps that North Carolina's law has not kept up with uh, technology uh, in this area or, or other developments in this area um, and that states who have the Uniform Parentage Act or something of that nature would give us nice answers to these questions. But with the law that we have to work with, we have mother and father um, in 50-13.4, um, I believe it is. Um, how do we how do we define mother and father? Do we have anywhere else to look to? Other than, I mean, obviously, we, the term is used a lot throughout the statutes. The terms are used a lot throughout statutes <coughs> in various different contexts. Used a lot in the statutes. And obviously, we have clearly adoptive mother, father. We know that. We have biological. Fortunately, we don't have the situation here of a donor egg and a donor right. sperm and a different surrogate, which can happen. Could, could easily happen. Um, and, and we don't have that one. But wh where do we get the de definition, mother, father? So, uh, appellant's definition of mother, I think, was it some, somebody who provides the genetic material or somebody who actually gives birth to the child? And we say that's, that's way too narrow. Um, And I think mother is the fem is a female parent. Um, I think they say father is the the male parent. So if we say mother is the is is a female parent and not limit it to a female who has either provided genetic material or given birth, um, then that puts kind of mother and father on par with each other. It doesn't just say father is the male parent whereas mother has to either provide genetic material or, or give birth. <clears throat> um, and I think it's, it's we, we don't have the UPA, maybe you know, we will at some point, but what, what I am leaning into is a, um, an intentional parentage sort of approach. <clears throat> I've chosen to be a mother to this child. I have chosen to be a father to this child. <clears throat> and how I made that choice was, um, either it was engaging in some kind of activity that produced the child, whether that was um, sexual intercourse, whether that was um, choosing a sperm donor, whether that was going and doing all the <coughs> paperwork and procedures for the IVF clinic, whether it was choosing a donor embryo. <coughs> we have intentionally created this, and I am a man, and so that I, I am the intentional father. I am a woman, I am the inten intentional mother. Um, of this child for purposes of, for purposes of child support. Um, and I mean, we, we could get into, I have, most of my hypotheticals are really hypotheticals. That first one I said, you know, is actually <clears throat> a case that I had and I'm not gonna get into all of them, but I said that the one that I know existed out in the world, we had a heck of a time in custody because who's the mother and who's the third party? And we represented the woman who gestated and birthed the child. And the other attorney represented the woman who provided the genetic material. And he did a third party custody action saying, 
I'm a third party, I'm entitled to custody, and we're sitting here in an office going, actually, you're the mother, and we're, we represent the third party, but we're not going to say anything to you. We're going to let you kind of <clears throat> jump through your hoops over there. But I'm sure he, he thought that he was right that our, our client gave birth. She was the mother, and we thought we were right. Their client provided the genetic material. She was the mother. So um, there are too many children <clears throat> who are not going to have child support <clears throat> if we stick to a born to a marriage, they get support. Not born to a marriage, they only get support if they were conceived through sexual intercourse. And that's not the purpose of child support. The purpose of child support is to ensure the child receives support from the two people responsible for its conception and birth. And um, that is why, you know, we, however many years back it was, <clears throat> we had unmarried mothers responsible for support. You know. And, and you know, unmar unmarried fathers have, have you know have rights to custody, <clears throat> um, or saying you know at one point where we only had father responsible support back when you know presumably they figured the General Assembly figured mothers weren't working and they were the ones who were going to get custody because dad was out doing whatever and um, he'd had to pay support. <clears throat> and but as we evolved to both parents are responsible for support. Um, I think that needs to include both parents, regardless of gender and regardless of marital status. <clears throat> because, um, you know, I talked a little bit in my brief, and Mr. Wofford talked a little bit too about the um, the case in the the uh, the 50B, interpreting that in a gender neutral way. <clears throat> and in that case, it was interpreted in general neutral way because said so to to interpret it differently would be unconstitutional. And to interpret it differently would not serve the purpose. <clears throat> and the, the question is, for the for the people who wanted to interpret it exactly as written, can you show us a purpose for interpreting exactly as written? What purpose is served by that? <clears throat> and that's very convoluted, but or it's a very convoluted way for me to to articulate it. Um, but I think if we take that idea in the in child support. What purpose can we show? What you know, actual purpose to children or governmental purpose can we show that is served by interpreting everything exactly as is in a man-woman dynamic for two people to have a child? And there's not. It actually defeats the purpose of child support, which is for children to receive financial support from two people. Um, is, there a, is there a difference sort of analytically or, or, or how you know, trial courts address the issue of de facto parent for purposes of custody between the analysis of, I guess, de facto mother or father for purposes of child support? Is there a, a do you see a difference analytically between those two, those inquiries, those questions? Um, <clears throat> and I, I ask that because it essentially seems to me that the, the, the trial court here kind of looked back to the, the custody order, right? Right, and okay. said, well, you know, under you know, you've been determined to be to have cust you know custodial rights under this um, under that analysis, and as such, we think we sort of have the same commensurate obligations under the child support statute. So, first, I will kind of say. 
sometimes terminology matters and sometimes terminology doesn't matter. <clears throat> like I tell my clients in custody cases, if somebody says you have joint physical custody, that word doesn't mean what you think it means. It, you can have 364 days with one and one with the other and call it joint and call it shared. <clears throat> you can call it, you know, North Carolina custody. You can call it, you know, Mickey Mouse custody. What it does, what matters is <clears throat> what you're doing. Um, joint legal custody, okay, in that context, that has a legal meaning. <clears throat> I think a lot of the words that are, that are used maybe have specific legal meanings and some don't, and maybe they're used in a, in a way other than they, they should be used. <clears throat> so I think when we're dealing strictly with custody and we're dealing with non-parent and parent, what we mean by those terms is biological, biologically related person and non-biologically related person. <clears throat> I don't think we can take the terminology used in a custody case to say, well, aha, she's already been found to be a, not a parent. No, she's been found to be someone who is not biologically related. <clears throat> and this is the, the label that we're, we're slapping on is because saying the not biologically related party is, it, we don't want to keep saying that. <laughs> um, that is just a lot to say. And we don't want to keep saying the biologically related person. So we say that's the parent and that's the non-parent in terms of custody. Um, and I think that terminology is different um, when you're dealing with child support. And it, it is kind of interesting in a way that the child support statutes use the word mother and father and not parents or not biological parents. Um, and, and mother and father have more of a, 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 a Maybe it's biological relationship, but maybe it's um, not a biological relationship. Um, you call somebody mom who's not your mother. Maybe it's your stepmom you call. So mother and father is, is kind of a weird choice of words, <clears throat> I think, in the statute. And I don't know what they meant by saying mother and father instead well, of saying. Back when they adopted yeah. this statute, I don't know exactly when, but it's obviously been around for a while. Right. Do you think they had any question about what mother and father meant? Beyond, probably not. But obviously, they would have known <clears throat> about it. Probably not. Because you know, a lot of the technology didn't exist. Right. And even as, as Mr. Wofford said, you know, that, that there's no question who the mother is, that sometimes there's a question who the father is because they need a paternity test. But the reality is there well, can be a question. As you say, who the sometimes there is. may be a question as to <laughs> who the mother is. There can absolutely be a question right? who the mother is. A hundred years ago, we who, didn't I mean, have who, a question, really. You know, who is the mom? Is the mom the person who provides genetic material, the person who cared for? and chose to create the child. Um, and I get this is, this is something new. Um, I, I don't recall a case that this court has decided that's quite like this. And by asking you to affirm the trial court's decision, we are asking you to do something just, you know, a little bit, a little bit different. Um, but that is, that is how the custody law evolved through this court, through the Supreme Court. <clears throat> um, that is how now the, the 50B law has evolved to be, be gender neutral and non-discriminating, has evolved through this court, through the Supreme Court. <clears throat> so the idea that this can only be fixed 
with a legislative fix through the General Assembly. I, I don't agree with that. Um, <clears throat> this court can take what we have to work with and can use what we have to work with to create a, something new or sort of new um, or repackage it and um, and get to the same result the trial court did, which I think was what the trial court was doing, is ta taking what we've got and tying that all together and saying all this tied together, now, you know, it's like if, if you don't quite have the spice you're looking for, maybe if you put three or four other spices together, you're going to get the same flavor when you're cooking. So maybe we have all these things, these bits and pieces we're putting together to get to the result, and it's a couple of steps that we have to do, and then... Once we're there, we're like, oh, okay, is this okay to do it? And the question maybe should be, well, is it okay if we don't do it? And that's where we kind of come at it from the other end, like happened in the, in the 50B cases. If we don't do it, what's the result? If we don't do it, what the result is, is there are a lot of children who are given an inferior status simply because their parents chose to create, you know, to, to bring them into being in a, in a, in a different way. <clears throat> and... Um, and in, in starting this custody action, Ms. Green started in a position where she was given the advantages that arose from our prior decisions, starting with, you know, Mason, Estroff, and going forward. And um, so she has reaped the benefit of that and has, you know, equal standing for custody. And in fact, these parties have joint legal custody and they have joint physical custody. <clears throat> so maybe they started out as a biological, biologically related person and a non-biologically related person, but by the end of the custody trial, they have joint legal custody, joint decision-making, and 50-50 um, custody. Um, but, you know, now she's arguing, I want to take advantage of, of the progress made so that I can as a non-biologically related person who cr helped create this child, I want shared joint custody, joint decision-making, but I don't want financial responsibility. And that, that's dangerous. Um, that, to me, is more dangerous than any potential, well, what if we have somebody when the, when the child's five years old who comes in and helps out? I don't see that as a danger. I see as a danger somebody saying, let's have a child together and then saying, at this point, I, am, I have been given by the court the exact same rights you have, biological parent, exact same rights. You cannot schedule surgery for that child unless I agree, because we have joint legal custody. You cannot decide, um, you know, potentially what camp this child goes to without me agreeing, because we have joint legal custody. Major decisions I am a part of, because I have joint legal custody but I have no obligation. And so if we, if the direction we've gone is, bless you, uh, two people creating a child together and one's not biologically related, but they're gonna have the same rights, responsibilities need to go along with that. They need to have the same responsibilities. Um, and from, from the perspective of the child who was created and had no choice in being created, to not have both parties responsible, I, I said it several times, but I'll just say it one more time, makes these children of a different, of a different class or status. It says now the, these children don't deserve the same 
support because of how they came into the world. And that's, I say that's, that's not right. And that with the tools that we have, we can get to the result that the trial court got to and we can um, affirm that. And so that's what we're asking you to do is affirm the trial court's order, finding that they are both mothers for the purpose of child support and keep that child support order in place. And I've got a minute and a half and I'm done with, with what I wanted to say if anybody has any questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please, court. The father and mother and any party with legal custody of a child shall be primarily liable for the support of the minor child. That little phrase, and any party with legal custody of the minor child, can be added by the legislature to the child support statute to answer the, the to, to, to satisfy the issues that are raised by the appellee in this case. The legislature can make that change simply, easily, quickly, and there that answer that 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 concern is addressed. What the appellee wants is for the court to step in and through common law efforts create new child support law that is beyond what the legislature has already created in the statute. We don't agree with Ms. Watts's limited description of our definition of mother. We don't define a mother as a person who is only the person who provided biological material for the child. Under our law, a woman who adopts a child is also a mother, a woman who chooses to adopt a child. Where we do agree with Ms. Watts's argument is that there can be two mothers to a child. There can be two fathers to a child. Under our current law, a non-biological parent, however, cannot just declare I'm a parent. In, uh, the status of being a parent, whether we call it mother, father, or simply parent, is a statutory status that throughout our statutes, there are different ways for a person to, to be given that status. Adoption is one way. Marriage to the marriage, the, a man marrying a woman who, is, who, who then has a child during wedlock. That's another way to raise the presumption of parentage. All of these things involve a choice by parties who are not the biological parents to become parents of a child and give, be given that legal status and the legal obligation under the child support law. They have to take steps to become or, or, or to be given that legal status. And our, statute, our statutes provide for those. Ms. Green didn't choose any of those options. She did not choose to adopt this child. She did not choose to marry the child's mother. What she did, and, and as a result, when it came time for her to file a motion for custody, she was faced with the same, or she was placed in the same role as Ms. Estridge was as the other mothers in the cases that preceded, or that were in the Gwinnell case, where they were not the biological parent. They were not an adopted parent. They were a romantic partner to the biological mother who had to prove that the biological mother had acted inconsistent with her constitutional rights as a parent in order to obtain any kind of rights. So when, when, when the minor child is in your client's custody, for example, every 
Thanksgiving in odd numbered years. Uh, who's responsible for paying for the Thanksgiving dinner? The, the parent with the child pays the day-to-day -day expenses for the child in this case. But isn't that, I mean, isn't that part and parcel of the obligation to support one's child? That is the, the in loco parentis type support, right. But what we have here is a case where the judge found that, they, that she was primarily liable for the well, child. So she was treated in the same way that a biological father who may have been married to Ms. Uh, Carter would have been treated. But we also have the, the situation with this joint permanent legal custody where your, your client has final decision-making authority for the education of the minor child. Is, is it your position that your, your parent or your client um, can say, you know what, I, I'm going to require this minor child to attend you know, the most expensive private school in the state. But I have no obligation to provide financially for that. I'm gonna, so that's solely going to be on. First of all, the the, my first part of the answer to that question is that the only reason my client has that ability is because Ms. Carter acted inconsistent with her constitutional rights as a parent. And my client was therefore able to obtain some custodial rights that, was in, that were in the best interest of the child. So Ms. Carter made choices before the custodial action was determined that, that my client was able to allege and prove beyond that by clear, cogent, and convincing evidence to obtain that custo those custodial rights. Beyond that, when it comes time to make choices, my client didn't make the choices that the, that the statutes provide for to obligate herself to pay child support to Ms. Green, to Ms. Carter for the times when the child is in the, is in the uh, custodial uh, is in the physical custody of Ms. Carter. That's, that's really what we're talking about here, is, the, is the, the primary responsibility of paying child support for, on behalf of a child from one parent to the other. And Ms. Carter fought those claims, and, and as Ms. Uh, Watts said, my client said in her complaint that she was the mother. Ms. Carter denied it, and there had to be a trial, and my client had to prove on the constitutional basis that there were, that, that Ms., not that she was the mother, but that Ms. Carter had acted inconsistently with her rights. And so when it comes time to choosing and making choices, Ms. Green did not make the choices that would have made that claim a lot easier for her. But as a result, it puts her in a position now where she doesn't fall into any of the statutory classes of those who are primarily liable for child support. And again, that's what the court found here at the trial level, that she was primarily liable, not secondarily liable. So we're not talking about the in, in, in loco. So um, for those reasons, we're asking this court to reverse and vacate the child support order that was entered at the trial level. Thank you. Thank you. All right, and thank you both for your arguments. And we will adjourn court.